Welcome to Food Focus, a weekly companion to the Retail Focus podcast. Each show will discuss news, issues, and product releases in the restaurant, fast food, beverage, and grocery industries. Here are your hosts, Trent Kling and Leighton Kling. It's another edition of the Food Focus podcast with Trent and Leighton Kling. On today's show, Bob Evans sells off their restaurant division, giving in to an activist investor. Olive Garden releases their latest limited time offer and a cupcake growth story. But first, last Thursday after the closing bell, Starbucks reported their first quarter fiscal 2017 earnings and showed continued signs of strong international growth, but also some cooling off in the U.S. market and the mention of some troubling trends in some of their U.S. stores. Now, this happened before all of the political talk about Starbucks hiring 10,000 refugees over the next five years internationally. So not just in U.S. stores, but internationally. So today, more bad news for Starbucks as the hashtag boycott Starbucks began to trend. And then the hashtag shop Starbucks began to trend as well on the other side of this. Let's disregard politics, though, and just look at this earnings release and some of the information that came out after this earnings release. Shares fell as much as 3.9% in after-hours trade following this release, despite the fact that there were a lot of numbers that were fairly positive for Starbucks. Yeah, you know, I have to admit here, I was really looking forward to this earnings call because we had covered pretty deeply the investor day that they had back on December 7th, where they outlined their strategy for fiscal 2017 and then also their strategy moving forward five to 10 years from now. And so through this, you can see their strategy and how it's been implemented thus far in their first quarter. So we look at the results here. And as you mentioned, shares fell by 3.9% in after hours trading, basically indicating that shareholders and analysts weren't liking what they saw. But there were a lot of positive aspects, as you alluded to. Starbucks posted adjusted earnings of 52 cents per share on $5.73 billion in revenue. That is a massive amount of revenue. This earnings per share actually met analyst expectations. However, they did miss on top line revenue. Analyst expectations overall from a Thomson Reuters consensus was $5.85 billion. You could see though, revenue did rise 7% year over year if you're looking at the previous quarter of last year. And honestly, I think the 7% rise is an indicator that they are executing very well. There's still a growth story here domestically and internationally as the Chinese market is something they keep talking about and they keep opening a lot of locations overseas in a multitude of markets. So overall, we can see that the 7% growth, though, is not in line with company expectations. If you remember back to the investor day on that first week in December, the company really did expect revenue to rise about 10% year over year. And with that comes a little bit less of an expectation going forward. The company said they are now expecting 8 to 10% revenue increases for the rest of fiscal 2017. So I think that is the primary reason why the stock dipped in after hours trading. You can see that global same store sales did come in at a positive 3% for the company. Analysts, however, were expecting 3.8%. So again, this really ties into that top line revenue number. Global traffic was down 1%, but the global ticket was up 4%, which kind of ties into their overall strategy of marketing the food items, those breakfast sandwiches, and other things. China, same store sales, they were up 5%. So really, really good numbers from there. 
obviously carrying the load from the European, Middle East, and African markets that really lacked overall traffic numbers. Domestic same-store sales. So same-store sales in the United States came in at 3%. Analysts were expecting 3.9%. So you can really see that the European markets and the markets here domestically were the factors in bringing down those same-store sales numbers versus analyst expectations. They did, however, have a 5% increase in ticket here domestically, but again, 2% less traffic to its location. So they really are implementing well when it comes to trying to offer more product selection. However, they're just not bringing in the customers, and I think there are several factors to blame in that for this quarter. Lots of factors at play when you look at a business like Starbucks, and let's not forget the 5% increase in ticket has two price increases over the course of the last fiscal year built into that since we are comparing year-over-year numbers, and that's one of the reasons why their operating margin came in at their highest point ever at 19.8%, which is an increase of 10 basis points. Now, there are certainly some positives here for Starbucks, as you mentioned, Leighton, how they're operating just in terms of the margin front. Also, their active U.S. rewards membership is up 16% to 12.9 million. Again, those are active U.S. members. However, there are other issues for Starbucks that they did mention during this call. And one of the issues that got the most press after the fact was the fact that a lot of people are moving to app-based ordering at Starbucks. In fact, there are some analysts that say that mobile payments could account in one year for 30% of transactions at company-owned U.S. stores. That would be by the end of this fiscal year. Currently, there's seeing between 7 and 10% of sales from their mobile app. And this is becoming a problem for the individual stores because it is backing up throughput at these individual stores. So what's happening is you're getting a glut of customers rather than the line to put in an order. You get a glut of customers waiting to pick up their order because they place orders on mobile apps. The wait time is larger than they had anticipated or the orders come in waves, say during the lunch hour or during the morning hour. And this is causing some backup in terms of people getting their drinks. One of the things that COO Kevin Johnson said during the earnings call was a lot of customers seem to be coming in, walking in, seeing the line of people waiting to get their drinks, not so much the line of people waiting to order and then leaving without placing their order, which might be eroding overall traffic numbers at their U.S. locations. So Starbucks is experimenting with a few different things to assist on this end. They're trying out at some locations some employees whose main job it is is to process those online orders and they're tinkering with perhaps adding employees at the locations that get the most online orders. But I wrote down here, I've got just some back-of-the-napkin data that I tracked the last five Starbucks locations I went to. Keep in mind, in five different markets, four different states. These are my exact wait times for the same drink at every location. The drink in question was a tall, white mocha, no-whip almond milk. Wait times were 13 minutes, 9 minutes, 21 minutes, 19 minutes, and 14 minutes in that order. That's an extensive amount of time. And we'll talk about Olive Garden later on in the show. Sometimes the wait from ordering to getting your food even at an Olive Garden isn't that extensive. We talk about Buffalo Wild Wings having a 15-minute order guarantee during the lunch hour, and we see two of these times for Starbucks falling outside of those times. The main issue for Starbucks during my visits there did seem to be either online ordering or having a hard time juggling drive-through orders compared with in-house orders because 
because remember, in most QSRs, drive-through orders do take precedence over the orders in-house. So these type of wait times aren't going to do anything to win customers over. And the fear here from Starbucks is that they're going to begin to lose more market share to the likes of Dunkin' Donuts. And then we've talked before about Caribou Coffee on this podcast. Their combination work with Einstein Brothers Bagels could help to build out their chain. So there is a lot of competition looming on the horizon for Starbucks. They have to find a way to figure out how to push the extra customers or the customers that are getting those online orders sent in through the line, getting those drinks made more quickly so that they don't have people walking out after seeing the line of people waiting to pick up the drink. All that being said, the company did build out net new stores in the quarter. They have 349 net new stores in the quarter, bringing their total store count to 25,734 in 75 countries worldwide. So they are very concentrated on building their growth outward, but they also have to figure out a way to maintain those strong same-store sales that analysts look for quarter after quarter. You know, Trey, you spoke on their mobile order and payment platform, and I got to say, you can see a lot of significant growth there, but I think it was a factor in the stagnant or slowing of growth in those same-store sales here domestically. You see that in the United States, they now had 1,200 locations that had 20% of transactions from their mobile payment processing system, whereas this quarter last year, they only had 600. So that's 100% growth with the mobile order or online payment setup. And I think that really is an indicator that perhaps they need to have higher staffing levels and perhaps they need to figure out the best practices. And the management, if you listen to the earnings call, did allude to that saying that they are looking at the throughput for the better locations and really trying to have those best practices laid out over all of the stores that have implemented the mobile ordering system. But as you mentioned, they have grown very well in their store count and they reiterated earnings per share guidance, which is a really good signal despite not reiterating the same store sales outlook for fiscal 2017. They continue to expect gap earnings per share in the range of $2.09 to $2.11 per share. And then the other bright spots, I was looking at the different categories of sales in these individual locations. They cited T sales growing very fast beyond company expectations. They said T sales overall grew about 10% in the United States and 15% globally. That actually really was astounding to me. That's an astounding figure, basically saying that customers are not going in for coffee as much as they once were. And then also something, again, that tied into their investor day back in December, food sales grew 8% globally and now account for 20% of all sales. So all total sales, one-fifth of it is food. Breakfast sandwiches alone grew 16%, and they highlighted the more expensive breakfast sandwiches, saying that they did have some very successful rollouts there. So overall, we see the highlights from the earnings call is the continued focus on technology innovation. We talk about that mobile ordering and paying system, and then also focusing on successful rollouts for new stores and revamping some current stores. They're saying that the customer experience is still their number one priority, and so they're going through and really having a thorough analysis of what stores need to be redone, a little bit of revamping, if you will, for not only the technology innovation by getting these customers through to have a positive throughput, but just having an overall bright and open atmosphere as well. As we talk about their performance in the restaurant sector, we have to keep in mind that they
they also license some of their products, the ready-to-drink offerings, and some of their K-Cup offerings here in the United States. They cited being a share leader now with 17.7% of the market share in the K-Cup market. And the K-Cup sales, they said, grew 10 times faster than the K-Cup market as a whole. The K-Cup market has actually matured quite a bit. You're seeing growth come in between 1% and 2% annually. And then also their share of total liquid coffee and energy drinks grew to 14% of the market. They cited growths and strengths in bottled Frappuccino and the double shot energy drink that has become a fan favorite. I'm glad you mentioned some of their ready-to-drink offerings and some of their licensure offerings because we need to keep in mind that that does make up a decent amount of their overall revenue year over year. One other note on Starbucks before we move on. Just Monday morning, Monday, January 30th, they announced that they have teamed up with Amazon's Alexa platform to allow for ordering not only through their platform, but also through Starbucks mobile app through what they're calling the My Starbucks Barista. So they're using some of this Amazon Alexa technology, another Pacific Northwest company. So you can speak or text your order through the My Starbucks app and then pay for it as well before picking it up in the store. Meanwhile, on the Alexa platform, according to their release again on Monday morning, January 30th, there's a skill that exists that allows customers to use the Alexa device to place their usual orders by saying, and I quote, Alexa, order my Starbucks. And that order will then be processed through Starbucks. So credit goes to Starbucks, certainly. They're continually looking towards this technological innovation, even as we've mentioned, they've had some issues with mobile ordering and folding mobile ordering into their overall system behind the counter. But credit to them as they continue to find ways to grow domestic same-store sales. We move on to another restaurant operator, this time, Bob Evans, which is a company we've talked about several times on the Food Focus podcast, announced last week that they are going to be selling off the restaurant division to private equity firm Golden Gate Capital for $565 million, and they look to be closing by the end of April. And so with this, they're going to be focused on its packaged food division, BEF Foods, and that's really seen impressive growth over the last few years. This, according to management, has been in the works for several months now, and this really has been a recurring topic. In fact, we've talked about this once or twice on the Food Focus about how some investors have really been pressuring management to sell off the more mature stake in their restaurant division. Activist investor Tom Sandel of Sandel Asset Management had procured a majority of his shares in 2013 in the second quarter, and he bought the shares around $40 a share and has really been the lead in the activist turnout here with this company. He's been saying that the company needs to unlock value for the more stagnant restaurant division and that they need to be able to focus on their packaged food division, which has seen some amazing growth the last few quarters. We look at the second quarter results for Bob Evans when they reported on December 5th, BEF Foods, again, the packaged food division, net sales were $96.2 million, an increase of $1.9 million or about 2% for the company. And then you look at a second metric here that I highlighted. BEF Foods, as a second measure, also reported household penetration increases of 24% during the past year. 
pretty remarkable numbers from their BEF Foods division. And when we've talked about this deal on the podcast, we knew it was right around the corner, but we weren't also sure which side they were going to sell off, whether they were going to sell off the prepackaged food division, which some people had rumored would fetch a higher one-time price that they could then invest in the restaurants, or whether they were going to sell off the restaurants, which had been struggling of late. You talked not only about the household penetration success of BEF Foods, but when you look at their second quarter side dish and sausage pounds sold growth of 13.7% and 7.6% respectively, those are numbers that will really turn some heads in their prepackaged food division. Some of the interesting notes as far as leadership of the company are concerned now. Bob Evans, existing CEO Saeed Mosini, told Forbes in a phone interview last week that apparently Saeed Mosini will actually take over for the restaurant division underneath Golden Gate Capital. Meanwhile, they will promote Mike Townsley, the current president of BEF Foods, to the president and CEO position of Bob Evans Farms Incorporated, and they will continue to trade under the same ticker symbol, which is B-O-B-E. You've got to give credit to Mike Townsley, though, because he has been overseeing this BEF Foods division that has seen explosive growth, really, over the past two to three years in terms of market penetration, how household penetration, that type of thing. So it's good to see his hard work rewarded as he gets promoted to CEO of the now independent Bob Evans Farms Incorporated, where Mosini will go and work underneath Golden Gate Capital and oversee the restaurant division. And I think you and I both agreed that the restaurant division has some positive things going for them. They rolled out a menu where they had more natural products. They put more of an emphasis on some of their natural foods. Also rolled out a line of gluten-free products as well clearly marking those on the menu. They've really undergone not so much a restructuring, but more a rebranding of what it means to be Bob Evans as a restaurant so as to separate themselves from the IHOPs and the Denny's that also exist in this same segment. We would be remiss to note that Bob Evans Farms also announced a $115 million transaction in which they will acquire Pineland Farms Potato Company, also projected to help out with their prepackaged food sales. So with this influx of $565 million, not only does this give them a little bit of flexibility operationally, but it gives them capital to go after transactions like this where they can build out their prepackaged food division and become one of the main companies when it comes to prepackaged frozen goods in the grocery store. There is a lot to like here from this press release. The thing that really popped out for me was the fact that the company got valued, or at least the restaurant division got valued, at $565 million, whereas previously they had a valuation out there for $560 million. So the company got an additional $5 million, and really this was a company, this restaurant division was in a place of profitability. So despite their same-store sales woes, we go back and look at the second quarter where they had a 1.8% decline per restaurant. But overall, these 521 restaurants that they operate have performed very well, and they have a very good brand awareness about them. On previous podcasts, we talked about their very strong social media influence. So there was some value here, and we aren't the only ones who thought so. With this $565 million valuation, they will be putting that cash to use, as you said. And then also, you talked about the executives and how they're going to be taking their 
respective roles with the company. I think this was a very logical move for the company. We spoke of their former CEO who's going to be focused on the restaurant division. He has over 30 years experience in the restaurant industry. And then we talk about their current CEO now that's going to be head of the foods division, Mike Townsley. He has over 15 years in the packaged food industry and has really had a lot of good operational experience having been the COO of Owen Foods Incorporated. So a lot of positive signs here. And then if you look at Golden Gate Capital, again, who put in this $565 million bid for the restaurant division, they already own Red Lobster, who Darden sold off several years ago, and they also own California Pizza Kitchen. And so if you look at their total asset base, it looks as though they're managing now seven to $8 billion in assets overall. So this is an operator who knows what they're doing, and they knew what to value the company at. So again, a lot of positive signs for shareholders, and you see that as the shares traded upwards of 25% on Wednesday after the news. Certainly rewarding shareholders that had been with Bob Evans for a large amount of time or had been anticipating this sell-off, including Tom Sandell, who had been pushing for this sell-off for a long period of time. In his view, he said before that the company may be worth as much as $84 a share. I don't know that the share price will get that high, but still up to around the mid-50s per share on settling after the initial sale, something that shareholders Longtime shareholders Bob Evans waiting for this deal to go through have to be happy about. We go from a restaurant that turned from public to private this last week to a privately owned cupcakery that is experiencing a growth phase. We go to Small Cakes Cupcakery and Creamy, a cupcake bakery that was brought to our attention in restaurant news this week as they look to take hold in a niche market that is experiencing growth. Jeff Martin is the originator of the company. He opened the first small cakes in Overland Park, Kansas back in 2008. Now, interesting note about Overland Park, Kansas, also the home of the longtime Applebee's chain for years with just 10 different cupcake flavors when he first opened. He appeared also on Food Network's Cupcake Wars in seasons 1, 2, and 7, gave him a little bit of notoriety, and he's begun to build out his cupcakes chain. Small Cakes now has franchise opportunities around the United States, and they're trying to drive home the idea that there's still a lot of white space in the U.S., despite the fact that by September of last year, they had a total of 160 locations, and now they have 200 locations. Yeah, so if you look at that, you can see that just in the span of about four and a half months, they've grown about 25% in their total store count, and they are really bullish looking to the future and that they don't have a lot of competitors in this space. The closest competitors that you and I found were Gigi's Cupcakes that was also founded in 2008, and they have nearly 100 locations in the United States. But they're differentiated a little bit in that they don't have as many flavor offerings, and they also have a lot of kiosks, so not a lot of stores leased out, a lot of smaller locations where they're able to offer customers their products that have already been made not so fresh. So overall, they do have a very good growth story here. Again, you mentioned that in 2008, they started with just one store. So in the span of about nine years, they've grown that to the 200 locations they currently have. And they are in 26 states. They've increased six states in the last five months, actually. So you're looking at the sales growth from about 
$60 million in 2015, nearly doubling to $110 million in 2016. And again, we talk about their flavor count from 10 flavors in 2008 to now over 250 with an additional 75 ice cream flavors. If you go to their website and really take a good look at their stores, they are very clean. They're bright, well-lit stores. And I think this really plays into the fact that they've had an increased amount of popularity with their concept. And they've really been having franchisees on board as of late. And I think this is a good sign for the company that was voted number three by Business Insider Magazine for food concepts expanding rapidly in 2015. So we talk about differentiators between small cakes and other players in this space. There are a bunch of smaller players in this space, but I think you and I both agree that GG's and small cakes are probably among the best. The others have some sort of downfall about them. Either they're, they're very small or even their franchise websites are kind of wonky looking. But these two businesses have franchise operations pretty smoothed out. When you look at starting up a Gigi's Cupcakes franchise, they ask you to have about 100000 in liquid capital, and they require you to have an overall net worth of 250000 with a 4.5% yearly royalty fee and a franchise fee of 35000 When it comes to small cakes... You've got a franchise fee of 30000 so slightly less than the franchise fee for Gigi's. You also have just a 3% royalty-free, and that's likely one of the reasons why you've seen small cakes grow out a little bit more. In addition to, Leighton, as you mentioned, the differentiation as far as flavors are concerned, and also the fact that they sell ice cream in their stores. A lot of these cake stores or cupcake stores that you're seeing start up, they don't have some of these mashups that small cakes has come to to rely on. In fact, one of their best-selling items of late has been cupcake-infused ice cream, and then also they have something they call a small cakes smash, which takes a cupcake and puts it together with two scoops of ice cream. And this helped to boost 2016 sales in the summer months. So that's something that certainly differentiates small cakes from any other place, is the offering of ice cream and the fact that they build in cupcakery and creamery right into the name. Now, as far as long-term prospects for small cakes, as you and I were looking this over, really the main competitors aren't so much national chains. There's a lot of white space when it comes to cupcake franchises nationwide. The one problem is, especially with the bolstering and popularity of the show Cupcake Wars on the Food Network, you see a lot of people starting up similar franchises or similar restaurants in smaller locations. So you have small owners, maybe single or double store owners in certain markets that prove a lot of competition to the likes of Small Cakes because when Small Cakes moves in, they might have a little bit of name recognition, but they don't have that personalized recognition that local chains are more likely to have. So that is the one thing that they'll have to overcome if they continue to grow. Additionally, Leighton, you and I were discussing before this podcast, their social media presence certainly leaves something to be desired. Yeah, their social media presence right now, if you look at their Instagram account, they have around 4,500 followers. And then on Twitter, just under 2,500. So uh, a lot of opportunity there for their social media. And this is a company that really needs to thrive on social media. You talk about a lot of new flavor offerings. And one of the main points, and they point this out all over their website, is their ability to adjust to certain seasons. So for instance, during the weeks leading up to Halloween, they're going to have a Halloween themed cupcake and then so 
on. So I think this is going to be an opportunity for them to showcase their new designs and their new flavor options and really utilize the social media that has really helped a lot of other operators in spaces similar to this one. But their overall strategy is something I wanted to talk about. It sort of remains unclear. They really haven't been talking of an IPO. And so really, they've just been pushing the idea that franchisees need to come aboard. And that's something I wanted to dig a little deeper into. You did cite the fact that franchisees may not have as good a flexibility if they're trying to innovate based off of those shows that have become viral hits. But one thing they do offer their franchisees is a lot of flexibility when it comes to building out these individual locations. There are some standardized options that the company gives. But beyond that, they said that franchisees can basically decorate the smaller stores however they want. And so I think this is going to be good for them going forward as the franchisees like to take personal ownership of these types of concepts. And then also they cited the small square footage overall and the low amount of overhead that they've proved out over these other locations. So I think those are going to be the differentiators going forward. They, they can really prove that franchisees don't have to be in a high rent area and they can still appeal to the general public. We'll move on to our last story. Olive Garden once again attempts to tap into their never-ending possible promotion as they release a series of limited-time offerings intended to target that audience. A little bit of a backstory here. As we mentioned earlier on a previous Food Focus, same-store sales were about 2.6% for Olive Garden, and they benefited highly from the release of the never-ending pasta passes. About 21,000 pasta passes sold in less than five minutes. The company claims to have sold them in less than 30 seconds. In fact, that number is unclear, but these were unlimited pasta passes for seven weeks. You could come into any Olive Garden location and eat until your heart's content. This really has factored over into Olive Garden's recent success. And if we look at Olive Garden as a whole, they're owned by Darden Restaurants, and that's Darden's primary holding. So they really are the banner bellwether for Darden if you look at the company as a whole. But this promotion has to do with never-ending classics. So Olive Garden says that this release is tied into the next phase of never-ending. And you look at the different product offerings here, Trent, and you see that these really are the classics. The promotion that's running, you can currently see on their website, these are never-ending classics that start at $11.99 and they include the spaghetti with meat sauce, the fettuccine Alfredo, and of course the lasagna classico and the chicken Alfredo. So I think there's a lot that has gone into this, but I think there's going to be a lot of fervor around these offerings for Olive Garden. And that's ultimately what limited time offers or LTOs are all about. The more publicity you can gain, the more press you can gain, the more Instagram photos you can gain, the better it will be. Jose Duenas, their executive vice president of marketing for Olive Garden, said, and I quote, We're excited to give our fans the chance to revel in unlimited helpings of their favorite Olive Garden classics. We selected five of our most popular entrees, so guests may indulge in as many of their favorites as they want. And those are the five entrees that Leighton mentioned. Of them, only the spaghetti with meat sauce is actually at eleven ninety nine. Throughout the other four, the fettuccine Alfredo, the chicken Alfredo, chicken Parmigiana, and the lasagna Classico can be had, but for an upcharge. And as most Olive Garden products do, it comes with also never ending salad and never ending breadsticks. I want to take a closer look on what this means for the kitchen 
at Olive Gardens. When you look at it closely, of those five, only lasagna, classico, and chicken parmigiana are things that would not have been available in some way under the previous never-ending pasta bowl. The chicken Alfredo could have been had by simply ordering fettuccine Alfredo and topping it with chicken. So we look at these two different things, and only chicken parmigiana dramatically impacts their back-end operations because their lasagna, of course, pre-baked and then thrown into a salamander to melt the cheese and that type of thing right before serving. So it's fairly easy for the kitchen to get that out. But their chicken parmigiana comes with two lightly fried chicken breast fillets and they top that then with cheese and sauce so that's another step for the kitchen in terms of this never-ending classics deal outside of that it doesn't seem to be too onerous on the kitchen to have to be producing a wide array of these dishes and they're changing up that never-ending pasta bowl promotion a little bit to keep things fresh in what would otherwise be a little bit of an off-season for Olive Garden in their limited-time offers. We go back to last January and February. Last January's promotion wasn't really so much a limited-time offer as it was the announcement of catering options at Olive Gardens. And then their promotion beginning February 1st, 2016, was a create-your-own-tour-of-Italy promotion. And they also do that in midsummer, So they were already reusing one promotion to begin with. So it makes sense to bring back their most popular promotion kind of for a redo in the early portion of the year and it's also got the potential to bolster same store sales olive garden has been running a string nine consecutive quarters of same store sales increases and it looks like they very much want to do that again for darden in this quarter which would be quarter three of fiscal year 2017 if you look at when this promotion is going to be rolled out from January 23rd to March 6th, we can see that the majority of it's going to affect that quarter three. And so up against the same store sales comps during the last quarter of a positive 6.8%, you're looking at a company that really has to come through and execute. They don't want to break the string, as you mentioned, of nine straight quarters of same store sales. They want to be able to hit that 10th straight quarter. And with this, I think they are going to bring in additional traffic. And we should say that with the Olive Garden to go platform, that they have rolled out somewhat successfully over the past few quarters in all of their locations, this won't actually be a part of that. So for these five items, you actually have to dine in to take advantage of the never-ending promotion. But another thing, another interesting question that we were talking about is how is this going to affect their outlook overall? We, we talk about how the company they really have exceeded expectations up to this point. They've kept Darden afloat over the past few quarters, and it's how they're going to have to execute on the advertising aspects of it. We talked about the social media of small cakes in the previous story, and really that's been a strength of Olive Garden going forward, and I think if they're able to capitalize on this, take it to social media to promote this, I think they will bring in traffic and therefore match those same-store sales increases that they've been wanting for fiscal 2017. Some of the other questions that we were asking or just coming up with regarding this promotion, how will this compare with their past limited time offers in this time of year? And you'd have to think that this limited time offer will undoubtedly drive more traffic than the Create Your Own Tour of Italy did because, again, that's a rehashed promotion, a redone promotion, and never-ending pasta bowl seems to have more name recognition simply because of all the press they've gotten surrounding their never-ending pasta pass over the last three years. 
So I think that question can certainly be answered affirmatively in that there will be more growth driven by this promotion, if not more margins. It might erode margins a little bit if people can eat their money's worth. However, I'm more worried about eroding momentum. And that's another question. Will this erode the momentum of the original never-ending pasta bowl in the fall or simply raise overall awareness of Olive Garden through advertising, through news articles, that type of thing, and in doing so, raising routine traffic? But even on that front, if they can boost traffic, are they devaluing their product with these offers? Are they building customer loyalty exclusively around promotional pricing? If customers feel like they can wait to go to Olive Garden in the fall when they have the never-ending pasta bowl, and again in the winter and early spring when they have these never-ending classics, then Olive Garden might hurt their off-promotion sale numbers, and they might hurt their traffic numbers overall if people begin to expect promotional pricing. And this is something we talked about last week on the Retail Focus podcast in regards to promotional pricing for e-commerce retailers. And finally, will going to the same well too many times hurt them in the long term? How many times can you dip into the never-ending pasta promotions without hurting your bottom line, much less over time hurting your top line because you're getting people addicted to coming in on promotional pricing? Now, I don't think any of that is a concern for this promotion necessarily, but Certainly, as Leighton alluded to, being cautious about how you're marketing this is going to be very important. And the biggest thing, and I think this is something to note as far as what Leighton mentioned about this not extending to to-go offers, Olive Garden's done a great job building out their to-go platform. However, one of the things that does is it reduces overall ticket sizes. People are no longer purchasing things like dessert or alcohol or other drinks, even their non-alcoholic drinks can be rather pricey with a high markup as they do when they dine in. So it's important for Olive Garden to bring in the in-person traffic. So even if you bring someone in and for $11.99, they eat four or five plates of spaghetti, let's say, if that person has one glass of wine or one Bellini peach tea or some such thing, then that's going to help counterbalance the amount of money you'd be out on that amount of pasta. And again, we've talked about before on the show when it comes to the never-ending pasta bowl, you're looking at margin items. And again, there's an upcharge on the other four items that are offered in this system. So I do worry a little bit about margins being heard on things like chicken Alfredo and chicken Parmigiana. But if they can get people in the restaurant, if they can get people to sit down and make money off of things like drinks ordered and dessert ordered and all of that, then this may be overall a positive promotion for Olive Garden. And they need something positive because keep in mind, they're going against those strong comps that Leighton mentioned, plus 6.8% same store sales in the last quarter three. That was a fiscal year 2016. They want to keep that momentum going and they're pulling out all the stops to do so in this quarter. Well, we close out this edition of the Food Focus podcast as we do every week by talking about one thing, Leighton or I ate, that's new to the world of food. And we'll begin with Leighton. So I've had a long-standing battle with trying to cook rice, and I even bought a rice cooker here recently, but I found an item that is sold both at Costco and at Sam's Club. It's called Seeds of Change, and it's certified organic brown rice and red rice, and some of the variations have chia and kale with them, but it's actually a pre-packaged rice that is already seasoned for you. It's already prepared to cook, and so it's an organic offering that you can just put it on microwave for about 90 seconds, and you have ready-made rice, and so this is really... A 
alleviated the headache it takes and the time it takes for me to cook rice in the past. And I really have been impressed with the dynamic of this. So you can just rip the top half of this bag. It comes in a pack of five or six per box. And you can, again, just place these in a microwave and it'll be done in about 90 seconds. And then if you look at the fat content, it's 3.5 grams per serving. There's two servings per bag. And then also one thing I was really intent on looking for is the sodium content because a lot of ready-made rice offerings have a very high level of salt in them to kind of boost the flavor. And this only had 300 milligrams of sodium, which is approximately 13% of your recommended daily allowance. So this is a very tasty offering and I am glad I found it. The only thing here that I should say is that the price point's a bit high. MSRP is around $13 for a box of six of these Seeds of Change packets. And so if you're getting about 12 servings overall, you're looking at about $1 per serving. So that is the downside of this. But overall, I do value my time. And this really does help alleviate some time spent in the kitchen. Interesting call. I think you'll come to enjoy that rice cooker. It's one of the most frequently used tools in my kitchen. Well, if you've paid any attention to the QSR industry or the fast food industry over the last few weeks, you've probably noticed Taco Bell's new Naked Chicken Chalupa. And I always thought the name was interesting because usually in the restaurant industry, naked means something that's not breaded or fried. And in this case, you get both breaded and fried. What it is, is a chalupa, only instead of the traditional chalupa shell, they have substituted a chicken breast that has been pounded thin and fried in the shape of a taco with some unique breading. And then it is filled with the avocado ranch sauce some lettuce, tomato, and cheese on top. And Leighton and I discussed this on a previous iteration of the podcast, but I finally got out and tried it against my better judgment this week. And I've got to say, ultimately, I, I thought it was a little bit overcooked, or at least the version I had was a little bit tough to chew. I do like the fact that it was seasoned well. The seasoning on the breading seemed to go above and beyond the call here, which you would expect from Taco Bell, but the interior of the taco didn't really do anything for me because there is no, as it comes, there is no meat or anything to it. You can add things like seasoned beef or steak or even more chicken if you wanted to, but that's not how it comes. It just comes with the ranch sauce, the lettuce, tomato inside, and it felt kind of empty on the inside. So overall for the $2.99 price point, it felt pretty inexpensive, but it's not something that I would make a habit of eating. But I did want to mention that I tried it, not only for the fact that I tried it, but also for the ad campaign that Taco Bell has put out around it. It's not your traditional Taco Bell ad campaign. In fact, they've kind of created this anti-ad campaign under the guise of, and I quote, the council for eating fried chicken the same way you always have, end quote. And they've designed a website, which is at the council for eating fried chicken the same way you always have.org. And it's really kind of an anti-ad campaign in much the same way that a lot of the anti-drug campaigns or anti-crime campaigns worked in the 60s and 70s. There's a lot of older 60s and 70s style drawings here. Very clear that it was made by Taco Bell, but there are some old style videos, including why not to eat these naked chicken chalupas, as well as some illustrations. And they've even created social media accounts where what they call the council, which is at Twitter handle Chicken Values, tweets at news organizations that have covered the naked chicken chalupa, telling them not to indulge in that or telling them that they must instead discover the joy of traditional chicken. So again, an anti-ad campaign. This type of thing seems to work pretty well for Taco Bell, though. They have a brochure that's available for download on the website. They also have a hotline that they post 
It's 1-844-D-R-U-M-S-T-K or 1-844-DRUMSTICK. And I gave it a call earlier today. Let's see what it sounded like here. Welcome to the Council for Eating Fried Chicken the same way you always have hotline. Celebrating 241 years of preserving traditional fried chicken values. For information on Taco Bell's dangerous new naked chicken chalupa, press 1. For tips on how to recognize warning signs of naked chicken chalupa consumption, press 2. Does your loved one walk with a suspicious spring in their step? Have they incorporated an unusual amount of leather into their wardrobe? Do they appear disdainful of additional fried chicken at the dinner table? These are all telltale signs that they may be hooked on Taco Bell's Rebel Shell. To return to the main menu, press 9. So obviously Taco Bell has gone all out creating this anti-ad campaign, if you will. And it's something that even though I didn't enjoy necessarily the product itself, I do enjoy from a marketing and advertising standpoint as far as a food company is concerned. Well, that'll do it for us on the Food Focus podcast. A quick reminder to check out the Retail Focus podcast that gets uploaded every Thursday and Friday. This week's interview guest will be talking about shoplifters and how they use glossing techniques to seem more normal when they're shoplifting from stores. We'll also talk about a wide-ranging array of things in the retail landscape. You can check that out online via iTunes, Stitcher, or any other podcast delivery service. Also follow The Food Focus online on Twitter at The Food Focus, where Leighton will be tweeting all the recent food news and food trends. We'll be back to talk more food seven days from now. This has been The Food Focus Podcast. As always, we may have a position in or against companies we discuss on the podcast. Do not invest in stocks solely on the input of the podcast hosts. For more information or for past podcast episodes, visit us online at retailfocuspodcast.com. Also, follow us on Twitter at The Food Focus for news in the restaurant, fast food, beverage, and grocery industries. 